Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the winter 2021 term of SNID. So that's Studies in, international, in National and International Development hosted by Queen's University. So I, and I believe today's speakers are located on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. So this territory is included in the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which is an agreement between the Anishinaabe Mississaugas and more recently the Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario. So some of you in Cataraqui or Kingston may have seen the new wayfinding kiosks along Kingston's waterfront that have been created by Georgina Rial and Andy Berg with local Anishinaabe artist Anagate. One of their kiosks is actually at Lake Ontario Park and it explains the dish with one spoon wampum. And it says, I'm quoting here, the dish represents the diplomatic relations of living on shared territory with each nation maintaining their distinct sovereignty. The dish shows how to live in interconnected harmony without interference, violence, or war. The diplomatic principle of Gudu Naganina is a living document and process for all nations to collaborate peacefully. The dish is used with a spoon for the purpose of sharing and knives are not allowed so that no one gets hurt." End quote. So I encourage those of you who are on this territory to check out these kiosks. They're absolutely beautiful. Uh, the Dish With One Spoon in particular has had me thinking a lot recently about what it means to live as a settler in harmony with this agreement, especially during COVID-19, to share resources, to respect sovereignty, and to collaborate peacefully. At the next SNID on February 11th, we'll have speakers talking more deeply to this issue of organizing mutual aid on the traditional and ancestral territory of Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe, peoples and also on unceded Coast Salish territory on the west coast of Turtle Island. And they'll be speaking a little bit more about what it looks like to share resources and collaborate during these violent and ongoing crises. Today, we are lucky to have Dr. Scott Rutherford sharing some of his new book, launching his new book, Canada's Other Red Scare, uh, which speaks to the histories of Indigenous activism and struggles for recognition of Indigenous nationhood, nationhood and sovereignty in Northern Ontario. Dr. Rutherford is an adjunct professor at Queen's in the departments of Global Development Studies and Cultural Studies. He is also a former co-chair of SNID, and so he's helped organize the series the last several years. And because of that, we thought it might be fun to have his former SNID co-chair and colleague, Queen's professor and historian, Dr. Karen Dubinsky, introduce Scott and his work. Uh, just before turning it over though, I wanna mention that Scott has been very generous to give his time on an afternoon when he's teaching. So we have to cut this session a little bit short so that he can go on to his three hour seminar after this. So we'll end probably around two or 2.10 or we can continue conversation, but Scott has to leave at that point. Um, so thank you for joining us everyone, um, Scott and Karen, and I'll turn it over to you now, Karen. Thank you. It's wonderful to see so many people here. Every teacher in this room, so to speak, knows that it's usually harder to teach about something you know really well 
as opposed to something you know nothing about. It's actually relatively easy to write, easier to write a lecture about something that you are not very familiar with. I think I have found today the same goes with writing introductions. It's way harder to introduce somebody that you know well compared to somebody that, that you don't know uh, very well. I have known Scott Rutherford for a really long time. We have shared lots of projects and adventures. We have fought winning and often losing battles together. We grew up in the same part of the world and now we live and work uh, literally steps away from each other. And yet with the publication of this book, Scott has proved to me that even people you know really well have the capacity to astonish you. I have known about this project for as long, almost as long as I have known Scott, but I was amazed at what I read in this book um, when this version of, of Scott's project hit the bookshelves just a couple of months ago. I have rarely seen a white scholar write with such honesty about their place in Indigenous history. I have rarely seen, in fact, I've probably never seen a historian write a personal letter to one of their uh, uh, historical protagonists, as Scott has to deceased Indigenous leader Louis Cameron in this book. Canadian historians are not generally given to such depths of honesty and emotion as Scott Rutherford shares in this book, especially the men. Canada's Other Red Scare is an ambitious and truly radical book that's gonna help change the way we think about colonization and decolonization in Canada. And I look forward, we're lucky, as Carolyn said, we're lucky to have Scott here. And I look forward to what I'm sure is gonna be the first of many public conversations about this important book. Thank you, Karen, um, that introduction. Um, and for your guidance and uh, friendship um, from start to finish on this book. Um, thank you, uh, Carolyn, Aicha, and Dairon uh, for the invitation to give this paper. Um, you're all doing uh, such a, an excellent job putting SNID together in um, such terrible circumstances. Um, I wanna preface, uh, I guess, this talk with two points. Um, one is I don't have any slides or visuals for you today. Um, I wrote a talk hoping that if you don't wanna stare at a computer screen uh, for a half an hour or so, as we all tend to be doing too much these days, um, you can just switch the screen off and listen and, and hopefully not miss anything. So the second point is that I'm using this paper to present a couple of ideas that I was really kind of still thinking through uh, even as the book was being published. And uh, I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm still actually not sure I'm connecting the, the two together in the way I want to, so I'm really, um, I really feel lucky to be able to give this talk today and to hear your thoughts. Um, so briefly now and longer in the paper, uh, I'm gonna start with uh, today with connections I see between uh, mainstream representations of indigenous resistance in the 1960s and early 1970s and Michelle Rolf Trouillot's notion of unthinkable histories. Um, this connects to a second thought I have for today. Uh, I think that indigenous resistance in the 1960s and 1970s named many of the characteristics uh, that are now associated with scholarship on settler colonial capitalism. Um, what this means to me then is the way that Canada is understood uh, through the lens of settler colonial capitalism emerges today emerges from the knowledge created by hundreds of small moments 
hundreds of small protests, community meetings, pamphlets, and public statements from the period I'm gonna talk about. Okay, let's start with uh, the first point, unthinkable histories. Uh, in 1979, a man named Warren Hart was called to give testimony at the McDonald Commission into tactics the RCMP had used to spy on left organizations in Canada during the 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, Hart was an undercover agent who had spied on Black political organizations in Canada, especially those associated with Caribbean student activism. He had also done the same thing for the FBI in the late 1960s, most notably in their attempts to, to destroy the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party. You might have heard uh, about Hart. He has recently been the focus of a Canada Land podcast and is a prominent figure in David Austin's book, Fear of a Black Nation. In various media interviews, Hart shared details on how he became close to Rosie Douglas, uh, close to Rosie Douglas a prominent black power activist in Canada at the time by becoming his driver. When he was spying on Douglas, though, he was also spying on those who Douglas spoke with, including indigenous activists of the period. The more Hart talked, the more he constructed a discourse about himself and his work, suggesting to the committee and to the media that both black power and what would be sometime, and what would sometimes be called red power, which I'll talk about, were controlled by a broader communist agenda that, was that he was working to protect Canadians from. Like Hart, the name Douglas Durham might ring a bell. Durham was an undercover agent at about the same time Hart was. Durham infiltrated the American Indian Movement in 1973 at the time of the Wounded Knee protest at the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota as part of the FBI's uh, uh, counterintelligence program. Because of Durham's skills as a pilot, he actually ended up traveling widely with, the, with American Indian movement figureheads, such as Dennis Banks, including trips to uh, Canada to help organize American Indian movement chapters here and to provide support at high profile red power protests, such as the Ojibwe Warrior Society reclamation of a town park in Kenora, Ontario in the summer of 1974, and the Native People's Caravan, which traveled across Canada later that year. By 1975, Durham was revealed as an FBI informant and began testifying at various American government commissions on communism and giving talks about the American Indian movement sponsored by the John Birch Society, a right-wing anti-communist organization. Much like Hart, Durham portrayed the American Indian movement and red power groups in Canada as pawns of a broader global communist conspiracy that he too was protecting people from. Together, these, um, this, this couple of simple cases might just appear as Cold War era anti-communist paranoia. But there's something going else, there is something else going on here, is racism. In his 1995 book, Silencing the Past, Power and the Production of History, Michel Rouf-Troyot develops the idea of unthinkable histories or unthinkable moments. He says that, quote, when reality does not coincide with deeply held beliefs, human beings tend to phrase interpretations that force reality within the scope of these beliefs. They devise formulas to repress the unthinkable and to bring it back within the realm of accepted discourse. Trio wasn't talking about 1960s and 1970s Canada, but rather the 1790s in Haiti. And he was talking about how French colonists could not even fathom the idea of black slaves imagining their freedom yet alone organizing an insurrection on the island, 
even, it was being, even as it was being imagined and taking place right under their noses. And he said this blindness wasn't unique to just one or two French colonists. Indeed, Truyol writes, the contention that enslaved Africans and their descendants could not envision freedom, let alone formulate strategies for gaining and securing freedom, was based not so much on empirical evidence as on an, ontolo as on an ontology, an implicit organization of the world and its inhabitants." End quote. For me, Hart and Durham's anti-communist rhetoric fit into a broader settler discourse which imagined indigenous resistance as impossible without being directed by outside forces. So when indigenous resistance named Canada as a colonial state, for example, which I'm gonna talk at length about, it was blamed on outsiders as a way to repress what Turiot calls the unthinkable and to put it back into acceptable discourse. This acceptable discourse was shaped by what was then and probably still now a dominant understanding of Canada's history that I think Russell Lawrence Barsh describes well. This legend he suggests is that, quote, Canada settled its territory peacefully while the United States fought many bloody Indian wars for greed and gold. Canada, it is often repeated, has been, he says, gentle, tolerant, just and impartial in its treatment of First Nations, end quote. I'm a white settler who was born in the late 1970s and I grew up in Kenora, Ontario, the largest municipality in Treaty 3 territory, which is also um, a large portion of Northwestern Ontario, sort of west, just west of Thunder Bay and including a small sliver of Southeastern Manitoba um, down to the US-Canada border and up towards kind of Red Lake. Uh, growing up in the 1980s and 1990s, I did not understand myself through the term settler, but I've learned to call myself this since and think of myself now as a guest on Anishinaabe land where I grew up because of the critical knowledge produced, by, produced locally by the Indian White Committee, Grand Council Treaty 3, the Ojibwe Warrior Society, and the Women's Mini Conference at Grassy Narrows in the 1960s and 1970s. Their main concern was to change the structural and cultural conditions of systemic racism and material dispossession for Indigenous peoples in the Kenora vicinity. Yet the historical processes they named and theorized would years later force someone like me to rethink my attitudes towards being Canadian. That's one of the points that I'm trying to make in this paper. In other words, that these theoretical frameworks are being thought out and named in communities and in resistance for a long time before they ever achieve wider recognition, if they ever do. So let me return for a second to where I started with unthinkable moments. And I'm staying in Kenora. At the end of November 1965, 400 people, uh, mainly First Nations folks from Treaty 3 communities in the Kenora vicinity, marched to City Hall to demand an end to all sorts of racist practices around employment, policing, and services on reserves. The mainstream media called this Canada's first civil rights march and compared it to the situation of uh, Black people in the American South, in the US South. But like my examples from the beginning of this talk, many also suggested that the protest was the work of outsiders, not local Indigenous folks. Negro and Jew spearhead march, read one headline in a Winnipeg newspaper, referring to Daniel Hill, a Black Canadian man who was then the commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Committee or director of the Ontario Human Rights Committee, and Alan Borvery, a Jewish man who worked with the Ontario uh, labor rights. As with their portrayal 
As with their portrayal as the brains behind the protest, a local MP also suggested that while marchers should be applauded, he was worried that outside agitators were stroking were stoking resentment in town. What this discourse and these examples overlooked was how a group called the Indian White Committee had spent several years working to shift how, under, how understanding about racism locally uh, was connected to the relationship between white settlers and indigenous peoples in the Treaty 3 area. So when they, um, when they marched, they uh, marched down Main Street Kenora, uh, this group, and they ended up at City Hall where they uh, read out loud a, a pretty lengthy um, uh, set of issues, uh, like I said, around, um, around uh, employment discrimination, uh, housing discrimination, things like that. What they also did was frame, uh, frame the, uh, the protests in a certain way. And I'm reading from it here. They informed town council that they were quote unquote, not there as subjects, but instead as neighbors. And as neighbors, their problems were not quote unquote, Indian problems, but community issues requiring shared solutions. Reading this document uh, immediately for me flips how I understood social relations where I grew up. It disrupted what many believed was the natural order of things. Neighbors had responsibilities to each other and Kenora and its white residents weren't holding up their end of the bargain. Just that small phrase for me is a work of theorizing the social relations of what we might now call settler colonial capitalism. From neighbors to nations, that's where the Ojibwe Warrior Society took their analysis a few years later in 1974 in a park in Kenora's south side. Today, when we hear calls for nation to nation negotiations, I think of the Ojibwe Warrior Society hanging in the Ojibwe nation sign at the entrance of the town park they were working to reclaim as Anishinaabe territory. They acted also as historians, situating this struggle for a 14 acre park within longer histories of contestation that drew all the way back at least to the early 1870s when Treaty 3 was signed. In a long ranging and fully transcribed interview, Louis Cameron, a young Anishinaabe man from White Dog Independent First Nation and an Ojibwe warrior gave a history lesson better than any that I read growing up in Kenora. He argued that indigenous peoples in the region had experienced two phases of European incursion. The first were trappers with the Hudson's Bay Company, voyageurs and some British immigrants. He says that Anishinaabe in the area helped settle these visitors and benefited from the houses and machinery that came with their new neighbors. Our people were free, Cameron claimed, because Anishinaabe folks were still able, to still able to fish, hunt, trap, and generally do their own thing. The second phase, he said, was more devastating. It brought what he called, quote, an invasion, beginning in the early 1970s, 1870s. It was during this time of mass migration where he demonstrated the machinery, how the machinery of colonization and dispossession impacted every facet of indigenous life. Railroads were built, British, sol British soldiers put down, Riel, Crowfoot, and Chief Red Sky. Indian Affairs were, was established, the RCMP was created, and the Indian Act was written and then enforced by missionaries in the military. In this second phase of colonialism, Cameron argues that the government, quote, started taking the land away from people. Trees were signed, he said, under force of starvation, and a system of segregating Indigenous peoples from each other was achieved through the reserve system. Once segregation and restriction of movement was achieved, business took over. 
We now, according to him, have nothing. There was no economic base for indigenous communities. We need something to thrive on, something we can depend on and our kids can grow. From Cameron and the Ojibwe Warrior Society, I learned about how the history of Treaty 3 fit within longer histories of empire and resistance. And from the recent work of Anishinaabe historian, Brittany Luby, we learned that in that moment, Anishinaabe rep representatives had a fundamentally different belief about the meaning of treaty than of the crown, than that of the crown and the Canadian government. One was about sharing rather than ceding. One of the points of this paper for me is to really help us better understand how indigenous resistance of the 1960s and 1970s built a foundation for theorizing settler colonial capitalism today. Some of the language that today we might take for granted weren't words that rolled off tongues so easily in the 1960s. Indigenous resistance fought to make these ideas part of a broader discourse and understanding of Canada. Today, when we hear phrases like 500 years of colonialism and see statues of colonial agents like John A. Macdonald being torn down, I think about how indigenous resistance in the 1960s and 70s may helped make such moments thinkable. This included the Mi'kmaq songwriter Willie Dunn and his nine minute documentary, The Ballad of Crowfoot from 1968. Set to lyrics and music written by Dunn, the video is a montage of archival photos document documenting the destruction of Métis, Cree and Blackfoot communities in Western Canada as part of Canada's westward expansion in the 1870s. Dunn's inclusion of images of Canadian soldiers uh, and British soldiers armed with an early version of the machine gun called the Mitreus, immediately challenged the notion that Canadian nation building was a peaceful affair. It also tied these actions to broader global facets of empire, with these soldiers traveling across the British colonies to put down rebellions by the colonized. In 1968, Dunn then merges past and present by fast forwarding to the 1960s and montages of newspaper clips on the state of housing on reserves, unemployment, and other issues around treaty. This understanding of colonialism was a longer historical process that indigenous activists were narrating in the period, put them in conversation with others who also saw themselves as colonized, but not in a way uh, that I think was uh, uh, more broadly imagined as being sort of just totally shaped by it or derivative, a derivative of outside influences, but in conversation. Uh, one example of this I like comes from Howard Adams's response to rumors in the fall of 1967 that Cuba was using Radio Havana to stoke the flames of resentment amongst indigenous communities in Western Canada by reading excerpts of Che Guevara's On Guerrilla Warfare in Cree, which could be picked up via shortwave radio. After weeks of speculation, the Canadian government, um, having interviewed the Cuban ambassador, said there was no evidence the rumors were true. Uh, when asked to respond to the rumors, uh, Adams, a renowned Métis scholar and activist from Saskatchewan, scoffed at the idea that uh, they were waiting around for instructions from Cuba via Radio Havana on how to do revolution in Canada. Rather than seeing First Nations and Métis organizing as derived from or manipulated by external forces, he encouraged the reporter who interviewed him to see these moments as the organic expression of the desire for a different type of relationship with the Canadian state. 
What emerges from Adams and others who I'll uh, talk about is a discourse that begins to situate Canada and indigenous experiences inside this country within a broader politics of colonial empire. Adams politics, of course, had a lot of room, held a lot of room for third world Marxism and black radical thinking. Uh, to cite uh, one example, in his 1974 book, Prison of Brass, he said that seeing Malcolm X speak, for example, in the early 60s was a transformative moment in making sense of how anti-Indigenous racism in Canada has shaped his own understanding of self. Such historicizing and theorizing with global examples of colonization and decolonization took shape across many venues, including in community papers across the country. Uh, most important may have been Akwesasne Notes, uh, which was widely read in the period. Uh, one uh, activist in their memoirs remembers that the offices of notes, quote, one could at any time meet Aborigines of Australia, Lakotas from Pine Ridge, Mapuches from Chile, or Mayans from the hills of Guatemala, the grandparents of all Turtle Island. So here, Indigenous struggles in the Americas were linked through common experiences um, named as colonialism. It was a naming process, like I said, that might seem common today, but I think it's only uh, but I think it was unique in the period. Another good example, I think, of the sort of transnational uh, 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 sense of, uh, uh, of uh, colonization and decolonization comes from 1975, when a group called the Native People's Friendship Delegation sent 12 people for a tour of China. Their purpose was to, quote, learn from China and to express solidarity and friendship to the Chinese people. Uh, the group was traveling to what they said was a once colonized place that had achieved independence. Upon returning to Canada, an American Indian movement chapter in California bought, brought the Stolo activist and writer Lee Miracle, at one point one of, one of Canada's sort of most recognized red power activists, to San Francisco to talk about the trip. The group that brought her was interested in the words of Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, in applying Marxian analysis and national liberation theory to the history of colonization of Native Americans in North America and to figure out a strategy for decolonization. Uh, today, when we see calls for Black and Indigenous solidarity, the 1960s and 1970s are important to me because it reminds us that these are not new desires. I think of Don Ray Flood's work exploring how Black Panthers from Chicago, most famously Fred Hampton, toured cities and reserves in Western Canada in 1968, looking to link Black, American, and ind Indigenous struggles. He was murdered by the police in his Chicago apartment not long after returning from this sojourn. I also think about connections made between the Black Panthers, Caribbean, and, in and in Indigenous activists in Ontario. Articles in community newspapers, uh, for example, uh, argued that the shared histories of dehumanization, uh, to quote one paper, made them natural allies in their struggles for liberation. I also think of Fred Kelly, uh, today an Anishinaabe elder uh, in Treaty 3, but then a person who had helped shape the vision of the Indian White Committee in Kenora, which I spoke about earlier, and who in 1968 joined Guyanese writer Yang Karu and Black Panther Kathleen Cleaver on stage in Toronto to talk about common forms of oppression under a, sister, under a system they named colonialism. A few weeks earlier, on the fourth anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination, Carew and Kelly had told listeners that Black and indi Indigenous struggles in the Americas were linked through this common experience, colonialism. We take that word for granted today, I think, 
but it was a unique insight at the time. Uh, at least the naming of it was a unique insight. These relationships for me created an expansive notion of what forces um, uh, influenced indigenous uh, dispossession in Canada by also making room for Canada's imperial role in the third world, especially the Caribbean. This was the message shared by Rosie Douglas, the Caribbean Black Power activist I mentioned earlier, and Louis Cameron um, uh, at an anti-racism event organized by Black and Indigenous activists in Winnipeg. Here they made connections between land struggles in Kenora, Canadian business practices in, in, in the Caribbean, and the appending deportation of nearly 1,500 Haitians. Douglas and Cameron gave two very well-attended talks in Winnipeg with close to 500 people in attendance. In addition to hearing about the topics I just mentioned, they heard Douglas use a relatively, perhaps new term to describe Canada, settler colonial. Canada, he argued, is not a quote unquote conquered colony. It is a settler colony and founded upon the premise of racism, end quote. I think it might be one of the first times, and I mean, I can't be sure of this, but I think it's one of the first times uh, Canada was recorded as being described as a settler colony founded upon the premise of racism from 1975. Some of how indigenous resistance named Canada as a settler colonial project can be described under the label red power, a term used often in the period to capture the desire for self-determination. There are numerous descriptions that people have used uh, sort of, sort of to describe this term in the period. Um, I'm, I like Fred Kelly's from 1968. Uh, Kelly said red power was quote, driven by the quest for self-determination. It would not advocate violence, nor he said, would it fear it? Um, and this end quote, it had a disregard for the establishment of what he said was the system and for the colonialism that continued to subjugate indigenous peoples. Red power, he stated, quote, has a heated impatience for negotiation. Its ideology and terminology is derived from the third world movement. Howard Adams, end quote. Howard Adams shared similar thoughts saying, leaders spoke of our struggle in the context of imperialism in the third world. It helped to feel that we were part of a global revolution against oppression. Indigenous resistance in the 1960s and 1970s would also go beyond this description and identify and theorize other elements that today we might understand as part of the broader apparatus of settler colonialism. The two I want to address briefly are colonization as a dehumanizing process and the gendered nature of settler colonialism. I'm gonna read two insights made about colonization and dehumanization that I find important from the period that I still think inform um, uh, the way settler colonialism is described now. The first is from Lee Miracle, who I said is a Strollo activist, intellectual and writer, who of course many of you know uh, of, uh, but who is also a key figure in red power politics of the period with the Native Alliance for Red Power, the Friendship Delegation to China and the Native People's Embassy amongst other things. Uh, the second is from Louis Cameron. Um, here was the notion, um, here both I think share the notion that colonization had deeply psychological impacts that any post-colonial or decolonial vision would require a deep reckoning with. Miracle. I think Fanon, France Fanon, taught me that, you know, with that little wretched of the earth, that the struggle is one for humanity first and foremost. Everything is secondary. I think that's true for me personally. And it wasn't true for all of us. 
But it is true for those people who started the Little Red Power Group way back in the 60s. It is true for us in our own way, doing what we can based on our sense of humanity. That was from an interview in 2008. This is from uh, Louis Cameron uh, uh, in an interview he did in 1974. All these things with edu the education system, the churches are pushing our people. You know, everybody knows that people have to be free to express human freedom. They have to laugh, they have to yell, and they have to be free to move around. But when you push people into a group like that, a lot of expression turns inside. Um, I'll turn now to um, uh, the way that ideas around the gendered nature of uh, colonialism were also developed during this period that I think went beyond some of the earlier uh, definitions of red power. Upon returning from the National Native Women's Conference held in Saskatoon in March 1972, Agnes Mills, an executive, sec executive secretary with Grand Council Treaty Number no. 3, reported that Indigenous women across Canada were voicing shared concerns education, culture, health, women's rights, Native women's rights, especially those pertaining to marriage, um, which had gained national attention because of Jeanette Corbier-Laval's efforts to challenge gender discrimination in the Indian Act. Mills came back reporting on a large uh, list of and broad range of issues, including, quote, poor sewage and housing and better pay and working conditions in town, in Kenora, especially with the summer season tourist season about to begin. But Mills also noted that they were concerned with quality of education on reserves, the high dropout rate of high school students, and the situation of boarding homes in the Kenora area. She suggested the importance of a women's meeting to find solutions in Treaty 3. Well, she says, so much for women's lib. This is what she wrote at the end of her report. We're not trying to take over the matters on the reserves. We just want to help improve things and work together in doing so, end quote. As Erica Dick and Maureen Lux make clear in their research on indigenous women's activism around reproductive rights in the period, women's struggles were often, quote, dismissed at the time by the Indian Brotherhood as anti-Indian, unauthentic, and indeed dangerous to indigenous sovereignty and self-government. This is also an insight that um, I think uh, uh, Kanawaga Mohawk uh, scholar Audra Simpson uh, really explains um, well, and which I've learned a lot from in her book, Mohawk Interruptus. That colonialism was an ongoing gendered process it was also hammered home by attendees at the Women's Mini Conference at Grassy Narrows uh, First Nation in, in Treaty 3 in 1973. At the conference, a wide range of concerns were discussed including the potential ramifications of a newly acknowledged but long rumored issue that their, that their main water sources along the Winnipeg River and the Wabagoon English River system in, in Northwestern Ontario in Treaty 3 were poisoned with pollutants, mercury from runoff uh, from local uh, paper mills. The conference was dedicated to raising awareness and sharing knowledge about mercury poisoning. Uh, reports from the conference show that participants were concerned that doctors and nurses on reserve were downplaying the issue in order to protect the pulp and paper industry. Uh, to counter this, the conference organizers brought in their own medical professionals to share knowledge about the impact of mothers passing mercury onto their unborn babies and then through breast milk to newborns. Again, it's the recent work of Anishinaabe historian Brittany Luby who has really put these pieces together best for me by showing how the gendered nature of colonization is clearly evident in the fact that the poisoning of a water supply 
also poisons a food supply, which enters a child through a mother's breast milk. There is perhaps no more vivid and tragic proof of the ongoing nature of the settler colonial project than mercury poisoning. Uh, mercury poisoning, a disaster that was uncovered over 50 years ago, was still in process and has required the work of generations of activists at Grassy Narrows and elsewhere in Treaty 3 to keep in the public eye. Before I end, I also just want to say something more about why I find this period so important. Um, as I've tried to say, we have critical theories of settler colonialism today because of the work of some of the people I spoke of, because of some, because of the work that some of the people I did spoke about did to name it as such. But in their work and in their resistance was also a vision for a post-colonial or decolonial future. The Ojibwe Warrior Society and members of uh, what became um, the Violent Death Committee named policing and the end to racist dehumanization as a vision for a decolonial future. Members of the Indian White Committee in the mid 1960s argued for a revitalization of women's handicraft work, not just simply as a sort of cultural revival, but also as pedagogy. Uh, the Warrior Society, the Ojibwe Warrior Society said they wanted to return to the teachings of Midewiwin, the Grand Medicine Society. The Native People's Caravan, Ojibwe Warrior Society, and the uh, Women's Mini Conference all called for Indigenous control of Indigenous education, not just an end to residential schools, which were still in operation in Kenora in the early 1970s, but a return to Anishinaabe knowledge systems and the ability to ch teach children Ojibwe in schools. The last few points were and this is my conclusion. Uh, the last few points were, uh, especially around indigenous control of indigenous education, focal issues for the Native People's Caravan as it traveled across Canada in the fall of 1974. Arriving at Parliament Hill for its first day of new session, the caravanners were met by a riot police. A clash ensued. In the aftermath, police, mainstream media, even liberal indigenous organizations blamed it on Maoists who had reportedly taken over the caravan. Indigenous activists from the Native People's Caravan were aware of the racist dynamic of having their ideas about colonialism in Canada attributed to outside forces, point that I started my talk off with. I'm gonna read a lengthy quote now from uh, um, uh, a pamphlet put out by the Native People's Caravan in the aftermath of the um, clash on Parliament Hill. Uh, they are racist because they say Native people are not capable of organizing themselves, that they need some outside force, force to push them into waging struggle, that Native people are not capable of directing their struggle, that they need to be manipulated. Their racism extended to the fact that Native people were used as pawns for someone else. And further, we weren't responsible for our actions. In fact, the opposite was true. We bear full responsibility for our actions and made a deliberate conscious decision to build fraternal ties with those who concretely supported our struggle to regain our land and hereditary rights. The federal government has always promoted their racist line that native people are capable of nothing in order to justify their interference in our internal affairs. History shows native people never stopped fighting, were courageous and fought tenaciously to defend their land and hereditary rights against the colonialist aggressors and now their capitalist successors." End quote. The omnipresent, 
I'm concluding by the omnipresent discourse, discourse of outsiders who come to shape indigenous resistance was, as I have said, not just about anti-communism. It was uh, about the unthinkable ideas that indigenous resistance produced in the period. It was about being forced to reimagine Canada through the lens of settler colonialism. It is because of the work done in the 1960s and 1970s that, that forces settlers it is because of the work done in the 1960s and 1970s that settlers are forced to not only think about where they are from, but where they are. So I end this talk with an acknowledgement that I am an uninvited guest on the lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee, as well as other First Peoples who have visited and traveled through these lands through time immemorial. Thank you so much for listening to me today. Wow. I can, I can see the clapping and I can actually hear the clapping. Um, th that was really great. That was really great. And that gives us lots to think about. And also, I'm just looking at the time, plenty of time for questions, 20 minutes-ish. Uh, we had a discussion about how we handle questions. There's many screens worth of you. So some of you uh, can, uh, I think we're going to do a division of labor, right? If you want to do, if you want to write a question in the chat, Carolyn's going to monitor the chat, am I right? And while you're doing that, or, or instead of doing that, put those little question hands up and I'll look for you. Or put your actual hands up for those of you who are, are uh, showing your faces. Or, or just shout out if I'm being too slow looking for you. There's a compliment in the in the uh, in the chat, but we're still waiting on it. It's, it's a nice compliment. We're still waiting on a on a question. Okay, we have one in the chat here from James McNutt saying, I see lots of parallels between your work and the work of Sean Mills, particularly in the book, The Empire Within. I think you both use an expanded idea of colonialism. So can you talk about the parallels you see between your work and Mills? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I, as I think I say in the introduction or the acknowledgements to the book, um, uh, I thank Sean because I've had a 15 year long conversation with him and his work, um, you know, uh, Empire Within and um, uh, is formative and sort of I was influenced so much from those discussions and um, uh, from 
I don't, I mean, James, I, I could go on for kind of ever about, uh, about um, Sean's work. We've collaborate, collaborated on, uh, collaborated on stuff like that um, uh, for years. Um, so I'm definitely influenced by his uh, uh, expanded idea of like, um, you know, one of the things I think I share with Sean is a sense of like who uh, our, our belief in who critical theorists are and that those come from maybe uh, social movements um, as much as from anywhere. And that reading that is uh, important in understanding uh, critiques of colon col colonialism and also visions for decolonial futures. So I don't know if that answered the question, James, but uh, yeah. Sean's work is deeply influential on me. Okay, we have another question. Well, we have a number of questions rolling in now. Um, so next is Marshall Hill saying, Niawin Scott, that great talk. I'm wondering if you see any connection between your work and work around racial capitalism in the States. So Therese Burton-Stelly in particular, that theorizes anti-communism and anti-blackness as not just a ruse to disappear black agency, but as interlocking modes of governance. Marshall, you always ask like the, you get right to it. <laughs> uh, is it in the chat? It's in the chat, yeah. Oh, thanks, Marshall. Um, I'm just going to read it. I, I, I haven't read um, Burton Stelly's book yet. Um, uh, um, but I see, I think I see maybe in Trio's, uh, Trio's um, unthinkable, um, unthinkable, unthinkability, uh, some connections to to what you're saying. Um, I really want to read this, I'm, you know, uh, but I mean, in terms of racial capitalism, uh, I wish I had have had a chance to talk about it, but I actually think the Indian White Committee uh, in their, in the work that they did in the, in the early 1960s in Kenora um, do a lot. And I write about this in the book uh, to think about uh, working, white working class um, anxiety around um, what they say as, uh, you know, basically the words they use, like Indians becoming their bosses, not just about the economics, like the, about uh, a class displacement, but a deep-seated belief in uh, racial hierarchies of difference. And so they do this like great work, which really to me feels like uh, um, it's, a, it's, it's connected to, to ideas of racial capitalism, but that book suggestion, yeah, I mean, um, yep. Gonna read it. <laughs> if I haven't answered questions well enough, please to just. This is my first Zoom talk uh, like this, so I, I you know, um, it's not much for dialogue as much as it is sort of pose a question and get a kind of terrible answer. <laughs> Okay, we have Matt asking, what is the situation in Kenora like now with respect to indigenous and settler relations? Uh, probably like it is anywhere. Um, I chose Kenora because uh, it's where I'm from, but um, I, think probably every place has its, you know, I guess maybe unique sense of social and uh, cultural dynamics, but um, I, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, 
it's also hard to answer because I don't live there anymore. And when you don't live in a place, you are, you feel disconnected from it. So I think anything I would say, um, um, you could likely read in a newspaper. <laughs> I, I, that's not trying to cop out, but I do feel a certain kind of disconnection um, from knowing what to say. I, in a lot of ways, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I end my book by saying uh, a lot of uh, what, um, a lot of the issue, I mean, of course, a lot of the issues that um, folks uh, were organizing around in the period in Kenora are still there. Um, you know, in the pa this past summer, of course, like the kind of anti-loitering um, uh, uh, laws that were about to be put into effect in Kenora were, um, you know, just so racist. <laughs> um, you know, under the under the uh, under the guise of COVID, but um, yeah. Thanks, Scott. Perhaps we can go to Morad, who has their hand up. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Hey. Hey, Thank you so much. You. I really enjoyed the the presentation, and I'm looking forward to get the book and read it. Thank you. Uh, uh, I had just uh, two uh, questions. One of them is uh, about the condition of the possibility of this indigenous movement in 70s and 60s and 70s that you mentioned. So, uh, is it these kind of global uprising, uh, you know, which were May 68 and stuff like that, or there is another internal, you know, kind of dynamics for, you know, which uh, allowed the emergence of these, these uh, resistance. And uh, another question uh, uh, is about the leftist interaction, uh, encounter with the indigenous uh, movement. Uh, how was it like, you know, uh, at, in these very early stages that you start your project? And uh, uh, were they kind of uh, hesitant to recognize these, these uh, struggle? They were allied with that or, or there is another stories about that. And I should add that, that I, I was uh, interrupted in some part of the presentation. I hope that I have not missed something that of which that, that I'm asking the question now. Thank you. Um, there's no simple way to answer your questions, Murad. Thanks for them. Um, the internal, external. I think um, I think what I was trying to say in the in the talk is that um, it was both that um, one's lived reality uh, could be interpreted in many different ways, um, uh, and sometimes it helped. It wasn't derivative of other things going on, but sometimes it helped uh, to see. Um, to see people in other places uh, naming um, naming uh, their conditions uh, with uh, similar sort of languages and characteristics that you were beginning to name and understand your life through, and um, I think that's part of what I've tried to say in the paper that it's the name it's you know the kind of naming uh, of of what was going on as colonial, um, I think was new. I mean, this is the argument is that, you know, what, how we understand settler colonialism today, I think, is because folks then, and, you know, probably before, but used like, used those words. 
and um, and I think we're only kind of reckoning with those words uh, as settlers uh, now, in ways that, um, um, yeah. Uh, in terms of other leftists, I think uh, I think it I think it uh, varied. Um, I think I tried to say that like there was some sort of uh, cross um, or some sort of recognition in each other. Uh, especially amongst red power and black power groups um, in, in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, it also depends kind of what we mean by left, um, you know, whether, uh, and, you know, and, uh, but there were also uh, clear divisions uh, as well, which um, didn't, uh, which also, which also shaped sort of interaction and uh, sometimes that was around like, um, you know, maybe uh, groups like the, you know, some, sometimes groups tried to impose their ideology, ideology onto, uh, onto, um, onto sort of these moments and these actions. And um, I think it's then that we see uh, uh, the disconnect, like there is no, there is no just sort of automatic leftist solidarity because of some sort of analysis. It's also how you relate to each other and who you see as like, a, um, who you see as a valid sort of uh, actor. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to kind of go with the questions as they roll in here. So I see that Beverly has her hand up, but first, I want to get to Christine's question because it's interrelated with um, what you were just speaking about, Scott. Uh, Christine asks, to what extent were the kinds of events in Kenora taking place elsewhere in Canada at this time? Um, and then she points out that <laughs> Dene political theorist Glenn Coulthard gave a talk last March about yeah. similar activities on the West Coast um, yeah. and in Dene territory. Yeah, no, uh, Chris, well, that's that's the answer, I think, is I like, um, uh, I use Kenora as sort of the, um, the thing to anchor, I guess, uh, what I was talking about, what I was talking about today, but yeah, I mean, Coulter's, Coulter's work, for example, and, you know, I, I spoke very briefly about Lee Miracle, and I mean, I think, I think Glenn's work uh, probably uh, talks about the uh, Native Alliance for Red Power and um, the Native People's Friendship Delegation, and like the Native People's Caravan, too, started, um, uh, you know, partly as uh, with folks from the Ojibwe Warrior Society, but also people from the Cash, uh, the Cache Creek Warrior uh, Society in, in British Columbia. Um, you know, um, I think I said at the beginning of the talk that um, there was a sociological study, I, off the time, I have a bad memory, so I forget who whose it was, uh, which like charted out something like hundreds of protests and uh, from like one little person to, you know, to what I talked about the, you know, the 400 person march in Kenora uh, from the late sixties into the early seventies, like hundreds, you know? So um, I think what I'm trying to say is that like I've captured a tiny little snapshot in this talk and um, like a tiny, tiny little snapshot, even a tiny little snapshot of what was going on in Kenora or in the treaty, in treaty three territory uh, throughout the region, you know, I didn't get a chance to really talk about Sault Ste. Marie or Thunder Bay, and and um, I do a bit in the book, but um, yeah, I think, you know, I've had that question before. Like, is uh, is Kenora unique? And yeah, maybe it is in some ways, but um, but it's maybe only unique to me because that's where I grew up. 
Well, thanks. It's a fascinating project and it's quite exciting to see this chapter of left collaboration. Um, lots to think about, thank you. I think it was, um, thanks, uh, Christine. I think in some ways it was an unrealized uh, collaboration, but um, ideas were there, you know? And it's hard to say the like movements, like these are mo really moments, I think um, a lot of times, like moments where something appears and then disappears and to say it's a movement, um, you know, it's hard sometimes. So there are these moments of collaboration, which maybe sometimes don't, uh, you know, don't go anywhere or that's just the way life is, <laughs> especially when you're, you know, really marginalized. Thanks, thanks again. Um, Beverly? In the chat. Hey. Oh, Beverly, in, in person. Um, <laughs> just wanted to thank you so much for the talk. I can't wait to read the book. And um, I'm just struck and um, really appreciate the way in which you draw connections between, you know, Caribbean students, Black students, uh, Indigenous movements. It's so very evocative of the current moment. But in terms of where words and, and the power of phrases and words come from, I'm, I'm also struck by extending, I think you attribute uh, Rosie Douglas to the seven, 1975 and in doing so, I'm, I think I'm answering one of your questions in your chat, but you attribute this to Rosie Douglas, right? Using this term settler colonialism and, and linking it to racism. But, but what I'm struck by is that of course, the idea of settler colonial states comes out of what was going on in Montreal at the time and the work of Lloyd Best and the New World Group talking about, you know, these plantation economies and differentiating them from settler colonies and using the word settler to do that too. So it, it makes me think that there is something in your book that's, that's also pushing us to think through in a moment where alliances are being formed right now to also extend them to regions outside of Canada. It's not just sort of immigrant groups, but the ideas are sometimes coming from beyond that. But I just want to say thank you. It was really, really insightful book and chapter. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I, I, yeah, I agree. I'm to go back and read New World Group uh, material again. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Sorry, I was muted. We have more rolling in the chat, but how are you doing for a time, Scott? Are you still okay to? Oh, uh, I could take um, another one or two, I guess. I yeah. Okay. Um, uh, appreciate, David's question. appreciate all the. Yeah. There are a lot of people who want to engage. Uh -huh. um, I'm very appreciative of all that. Thank you so much. One of the nice things about having the chat is that you can see the questions and maybe connect with the people afterwards. Um, but David says that. Hi, Scott. Wonderful. I finished the book in one night. Can you say more about your relationship to the history and how that shaped how you wrote the book? Um, sure. Um, uh, that's a, that is the last question because it's going to take me a long time. <laughs> um, I, like I said, I, uh, I guess, um, I don't know where to start. I, I grew up in Kenora. I was born in Kenora. Um, I didn't understand um, 
I didn't know of any, any, any of the things that I've talked about growing up. Like I would literally go tobogganing in Anishinaabe park or go to buy shoes on main street and not know that that land um, was the site of, of uh, what happened, you know, 20 years earlier. Um, And um, and that was kind of embarrassing, you know, uh, especially as someone who considered myself, you know, even in my 20s, like a thinking progressive person. Um, but I, I think to me that was an example of the kind of ideological work that settler colonization does to erase um, certain things that I've been talking about that um, even in the notion that, uh, you know, I go back to Truyo's point that, you know, when you're a white settler growing up in a town, like I guess Kenora is unique in the sense that it, um, at least when I was growing up, like Tanya Talaga says, Thunder Bay has a white face and a red face. And I say in the intro of my, in the book, like that is really uh, true of Kenora as well. And uh, the types of kinds of internalized racist beliefs that you think about people, even when, um, even when you don't think you believe them, uh, has always struck me as um, something that one should interrogate. Uh, I guess it uh, hasn't always struck me. It was the, it was the work of people that I was reading um, from the period who uh, led me to rethink my relationship to, uh, to that history. Yeah. It's complicated. It's a complicated question to think about um, where you're from. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Scott. Uh, for everyone in the audience, the book is out now. You can order it from the publisher. Is it, is it at Novel Idea? Do you know, Scott? Is it there yet? I haven't left my house in like three months. I don't know. <laughs> I think it is, yeah. <laughs> you can order it through them anyway. <laughs> Get it at, don't order it through the big stores. Go, go to Novel Idea. They have had it. This is where I got mine. And uh, if they don't have it, it's good for lots of people to be requesting it. Yes, exactly. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate you taking the time during all this to ask such insightful questions and to listen to me and uh, Karen for the introduction and Aicha, uh, uh, Carolyn and Dairon for organizing it. Thank you. Uh, online, it, it's in the Queen's uh, online Omni thing too, if you just want to read it and not pay for it, which is fine by me. <laughs> I also want to take this opportunity to extend a formal thank you to Scott and Karen for the wonderful work that they've done over the last several years with SNID. Uh, they had put together an amazing list of speakers. They kept the series financially viable, which is important. Uh, they kept it on the radar of the administration and they constantly pushed SNID to address some of the most urgent political concerns happening at the moment. So thank you for the yeah. years of service and work you have done. <laughs> well. um, Anytime. So thank you to the audience for being here. Just a last plug for our next session, which will be February 11th, and it is on mutual aid organizing. And we'll have representatives from Mutual Aid Cataraqui in Houston, um, someone from the People's Pantry in Toronto, and a couple of people from the SRO Collaborative and Right to Remain Project in Vancouver. Uh, so that's at the same time, Thursday, February 11th at 1 p.m. at the same Zoom link. So that's it. Thank you, everyone. And we hope to see you in a couple of weeks. And thank you again to Scott and Karen. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.